Well, good morning. It's a joy to be here and join you in worship this morning, and I extend my welcome to you along with Ron. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians. We're going to be continuing our series through the book of Colossians. If you have a Bible in the pew, it's page number 983. The book of Colossians is a very unique letter because Paul never actually visited this church in Colossae. It is a church that was planted by a faithful servant of Christ that Paul mentored named Epaphras. Epaphras was apprenticed in the way of ministry and was sent out to launch numerous churches. One of those churches was the church of Colossae. Epaphras has stayed in close touch with Paul about the progress of the church, and he has encouraged Paul to continue to pray. And Paul has brought assistance to this church in their own personal growth. There have been some Jewish law wranglers who want to impose extra rules on the church in Colossians. These are called the Judaizers. And there's another group in Colossae, which you could say are the overly spiritual, otherworldly earth escapers. These are the Gnostics. The Gnostics devalue God's created world and want an ideal escape from everything physical. Into this situation, Paul is speaking to declare the good news of the gospel. And that gospel is a gospel that frees us from legalistic, perfectionist, snobby self-righteousness. But it's also the gospel that delivers us from our sin between us and God, between us and one another. But it's the gospel that's restoring all things in God's creation. It is comprehensive in its scope. When we look at the book of Colossians, we see that there's a common structure in Paul's letter. And this is how he writes many of his letters. It starts with a greeting and grace. It goes from there to a thanksgiving for how God is at work in the church that he has established. And then from there we see a declaration of the good news, the gospel that has saved us. And then finally, there's a life of obedience in response to that gospel. So let's now read uh, this book of Colossians. And as we read this book of Colossians, we're going to find the central key point of the sermon today. You see, in this section of Colossians 1, 3 through 8, Paul is giving thanks to God for this church in Colossae. And as he is giving thanks, we see a key point to our growth. And that is our future hope directs our present growth. Let's now read verse 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it is also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love and the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, that it gives us life and points us to the good news of the gospel and our hope in Christ. Pray, O Lord, that you would use your word to stir our affections for Jesus Christ, that we would know his steadfast love and be changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What would motivate someone to continue going and growing even in the midst of an immense struggle? 
Viktor Frankl posed this question as he endured through the atrocities of the Holocaust. He was in the camp in Auschwitz and suffered under many challenges and difficulties. Frankl noticed that it was not the strength of the physical body that produced endurance in these camps, but it was the strength of the hope people found in the midst of affliction. Though their family was taken from them, their livelihood, their health, many people their lives, this sense of enduring purpose and meaning was the secret that many people found resulted in perseverance and continual growth. Frankel shares his own story of hope in the concentration camp in a book called A Man's Search for Meaning. He says this, In a last violent protest against the hopelessness of imminent death, I sensed my spirit piercing through the enveloping gloom. I felt it transcend that hopeless, meaningless world. And from somewhere I heard a victorious yes in answer to my question of the existence of an ultimate purpose. The guard passed by, insulting me, and once again I communed with my beloved. More and more I felt that she was present. I felt that she was with me. I had the feeling that I was able to to touch her, able to stretch out my hand and grasp hers. The feeling was very strong. She was there. The memory of his love from his wife stirred hope and purpose in the darkest hour of his life. And in our own dark hour of struggle, we too need to have the recollection of the love of our Heavenly Father, the hope that He has brought about in Jesus Christ that sustains us in our constant affliction and challenge. You see, when we remember this hope of renewal promised by Christ for giving death, when we see that He is making all things new, it changes our attitude. It gives us hope to grow and to continue to pursue what God's called us to pursue. You could say it like this, that our future hope that Christ purchased motivates, compels, drives forward our present growth. So look here in the text in verse 3 through 4. You'll notice that the first thing we see is the effect of our hope. Paul thanks God for their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. You know, this call to trust in Christ Jesus and having love for all the saints in some ways sums up the whole of the Christian life. God has called us to have a trusting love in Christ, to trust His character and His goodness. And we are to look only to Christ alone as our means of salvation. When we say that we trust in Jesus, we're saying we trust in His role as Savior. And we trust in His work, that He's the only one that could truly forgive us of the penalty of sin. He alone pays the penalty of sin and law-breaking. When we say that we trust in Christ, we need to be very clear. This is a name. And that name is the Anointed One, the King of Israel and the King of all creation. And so when we say we trust in Christ, we're saying that we trust in not our wisdom, but in God's wisdom to what the good life is. We trust in the Lord to produce in us the lasting joy but also right living. So you could say it this way. When we're saying we trust in Christ Jesus, we're trusting in a Lord who is a faithful and good King. And we're trusting in a Savior who came to die for us. But you know, it's true that trust and love for God is not all that matters in God's economy. Rather, out of the overflow of this trust, we're called to love all the saints. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
We're called to express care and devotion to all the people that face that are on this earth here with us. And it's interesting here in this text that he is providing these two things together, one after the other, a trust in Christ and a love for all the saints. And this was actually a pretty big challenge in the church of Colossae. Because like many churches, there are people from many different backgrounds. This was not a Jewish-only church. And neither are we a Jewish-only church. Neither are we of a single people. So God has called us to love all the saints. But trust and love are actually not the focus of verse 3. If you look in the text, it says that this trust and love for all the saints is because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. The NIV says that these two spring from the hope that is certainly established for us in heaven. So then what he's saying here is that this future hope is the thing that directs, compels, motivates us to this type of love. But what is this future hope? You know, Paul doesn't give us much clarity at this point in the text. But we see a lot more clarity as the text continues, and especially in the whole Bible. This future hope is clarified very clearly in the book of Revelation. That God is ransoming a people for Himself from every tribe, tongue, nation. It's this hope that Christ is making all things new in creation. And that He is taking the punishment of our sin. But also He's taking all things under subjection to God and new life in Jesus. It makes clear sense that this hope would motivate trust, right? If Christ came to purchase an eternal relationship with God, if Christ came to bring the kingdom of God and right every wrong in this world, then the assurance of that hope would increase our trust. And we look to Jesus alone as the strength of our trust. But how does our future hope bring about a deeper love for all the saints? And again, we have to think of particular people even in our city. How do we love people from diverse backgrounds, people from all sorts of different interests, personalities? You know, how does the INTJ love the ESFP? Is that right? Did I get that right? How do you maybe even love the person in your own household who is utterly different from you? Well, I think what we see in the, in the Scripture, our future hope is God uniting into one family multiple diverse families. We see even in Colossians that God is transferring us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. So what is God doing in our hope? He's uniting under one kingdom all different kingdoms from all over the world. This hope unites us together in a love for all the saints. And this is the hope that Revelation speaks of. Tongues, nations, all peoples here. Now when we focus on this wide scope of the hope that God is saving and uniting into one family, multiple families, it encourages our hearts. It gives us a vision that's much bigger than our own culture. It causes us to look and love many around us. And it compels us by that love to share and to love other people that maybe are not like us. But if our hope is rooted in the preservation of our race and our people group, then we will only love those who are from our own personal background. We will not appreciate the differences in other cultures and the upbringing of other races. Other races will seem a threat to our own culture and we'll 
shun people away from us because we're afraid that they're going to take away certain blessings or privileges that we enjoy or that our priorities will be shifted. You see, if we do not focus on this future hope of God uniting multiple families into one family, we might have a superiority complex and think that the American culture is the only one that is of significance to God. But if it is all races united through faith in Jesus, then we have sufficient reason to celebrate the good aspects of other cultures. We have sufficient reason to love all the saints, no matter where they come from. And I will say this, in a cultural climate where we're engaging in the conversation of of how do we pursue racial reconciliation, we as a church have the strongest argument for that. Because God loves all peoples, and He's united in one family, multiple families. And so we ought to go ahead and start learning how to love each other. We ought to go ahead and start learning how to knock on the door of our neighbor. We ought to go ahead and learn how to not just do mission way out there, but how to know and love those that are different from us here. But if our hope is rooted in financial prosperity, then we will only love those who help us grow our wealth or those who help us get a better job and provide more resources. We will despise anyone who threatens to take our possessions or our position at work. This will create a culture of competition in the workplace and at school where we don't work together towards the good of our company, where we don't help one another with tests that are coming up. I know many of you students don't have those now. But when you do, they'll just be competitors. You'll be fighting against one another, vying for position, trying to get ahead and to do better. And this also will cause us to despise the poor, to look at the poor in our neighborhoods with contempt. We will only see the poor as those that want to get our money. And therefore, we won't have the act of love and the service that they need from us as people that have been blessed immensely by God. But if our hope is rooted in a God who shows no partiality for the rich or the poor, then God will direct us to love those in our neighborhoods who are poor or to celebrate the successes of those in your company that are achieving great things rather than looking with envy or rejoice. But if our hope is rooted in a political party, if our hope is rooted in a societal agenda of a particular political party, then what's going to happen ultimately is we'll only befriend those who are fellow Republicans or those who are fellow Democrats. We will not seek to reach across the aisle to pursue the common good of our nation and also our world. We'll be afraid of being polluted by the other side. And I'm not trying to make light of any issues and to say they're not significant. But God has a love to seek the progress and the prosperity of the whole world that He made. He wants to see all nations come to saving faith. And in our polarized culture, we need to have this kingdom perspective that we long to see the common good in our city. And so we work together as we're able with those from different political positions. So what does your struggle to love reveal about your functional hope? Why is it that you have such a hard time loving another person? Is it because you've rooted your hope on something outside of Christ? May this future hope create this effect, trust in Christ and love for all the saints. If you look at verse 5-6, through six, Paul clarifies the message of this future hope using a few different descriptions. You'll see there that, first off, this is rooted in the word of truth. Hope is not an uncertain and wishful thinking. 
It's not something passing that is unreliable. It's not like hoping you get an A on the test you didn't study for. doesn't work. Nor is it hoping that you don't get a speeding ticket when you're going 15 miles per hour over on a busy highway. That is not the type of hope the Bible is talking about. But it is an assurance based on the finished work of a real person. And that person is Jesus Christ. He was a real person who was born of a real mother, who was raised in a real culture with real challenges, who was sent to death by a real Roman government. He died in that tomb and he really rose from the dead. There is no hesitation for the scripture to say this. It declares loudly and boldly, this historical person rose from the grave. And so if this is true, then our, our certain hope is absolutely certain and assured. But notice that he goes on to explain this future hope by calling it the gospel. He says that all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. And, you know, we need to be very careful when we hear a common word in the uh, church because we can miss the significance and meaning of it. So I encourage all of us, when you read the Bible and you see a word like gospel, consider deeply what it means. This word gospel is the meaning of good news. It declares that there is good news for us who trust in Christ. In a sermon on 1 Corinthians 15, Martin Lloyd-Jones helpfully clarifies what we mean by calling the gospel good news. And he does this by comparing good news to good advice. He says this, Advice is counsel about something to do. It hasn't happened yet, but you can do it. Then he goes on to say news is a report about something that has happened. Past tense. You can't do anything about it. It's been done for you. And all you can do is respond to it. You see, most other religions offer good advice. They call us to pursue a certain law or maxim. There's some way of living that we are called to embrace. And if we work hard enough or prove ourselves, then God will accept us and we'll move forward in the culture. But this is not the case when it comes to the gospel. It's not about proving yourself worthy to be accepted. Christianity does not start by giving us good advice, but good news about what Christ has done for us to earn our salvation. It primarily and first declares that Christ followed the law, that Christ paid the penalty of sin dying for us, that Christ is renewing the world and ridding all sin from this broken world. It is good news, a report of what was done for us. This is not to say that Christianity does not provide good advice. It does clarify a lot of things about how we are to live in the workplace, how we are to love our families, how we are to play with our friends. It says a lot about advice to do. But this is good advice in the right order. First, it is a declaration of the good work of Christ. And then it is a demonstration of how we are to live in following Jesus. Tim Keller illustrates this beautifully with a wartime scenario. Imagine that you were a military general in the heat of a battle. For the past five years, the battle has raged and lives have been lost over numerous years. After a long five years, there have been lives on both sides, missing, dead, wounded. You see, off in the distance, a man running with such intense urgency. Why is he so intense? Why is he so urgent? Because he has bad news to share with the general. He shares that the enemy has pushed forward, that they have broken in with more troops and greater strength. 
Our hope is gone. We've got to regroup. We've got to strategize. They send a military advisor. But what happens in a different scenario? In another scenario, a man is running with a sense of urgency. But you look at his right arm, and what is he holding but the nation's flag? Upon arriving, he can barely contain himself. The enemy has been pushed back. The swords have been exchanged for flags of victory. The shouts of anguish for shouts of joy. The battle was won. The army did not send back a military advisor, but he sent a messenger to declare that the victory is over. Christ has finished the work of our salvation. So we no longer have to fight to earn a way to God. This is the message of the good news. This is the gospel. That because Christ has victored over sin, and because Christ is bringing renewal to this earth, we have hope. What He's done for us, all we do is respond to it. Trusting only in His grace. And this results in joyful obedience rather than fearful expectations of, did I do enough to get to God? This message of hope is further clarified as the message of grace. And notice that Paul goes on to say that this hopeful message is bearing fruit and growing. It's expanding all over the world. The soil in which this message grows is the grace of God. The grace of God understood in all its truth. Now it's interesting, if you look at the text, he says you heard this grace and you understood this grace. And many of us, I would argue, have heard some message of grace. We've heard that God has done something for us that we can never do ourselves. But have you truly understood it? Has the implications and the wonder, the beauty of grace, so captured your imagination that it's changing your whole person? What Paul is saying is that when we set our hope on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it changes everything about us. And this grace not only is for our salvation, but it is the grace of God to change us, to shape us after His own people. It's the grace of the Holy Spirit who works in us, creating a new love for God and for one another. We see at the end of this verse, this very Spirit at work, the Trinity. Notice at verse 8, he says that this Holy Spirit is creating love in the Spirit. That is love that is shaped by the Spirit of God who initiates through God's people who have embraced faith in Christ and makes us more like Him. This is a beautiful message of grace. We're not saved by grace and then changed by work. But God in His grace, by His Spirit, changes our affections, shapes our character, and motivates and compels our actions. This is beautiful. But how does this apply to our daily lives now? Well, one important thing is we have to take this message of grace to our fundamental identity. We are not, saint, we are not sinners struggling to become saints. That's not our identity in Christ. But God, those who embrace the grace of God and the gospel, the good news of our salvation, are saints struggling with sin. You've already been given acceptance through Jesus Christ Himself. So do not build your identity on your struggle. You are not someone who has a porn addiction, who is trying to figure out a way to become a saint. You are not someone who struggles to love and is quick to hate. You are a saint who struggles to love and is quick to hate. You are not someone who cheats, who is jealous, who is envious, struggling to become a saint. But you are made a saint because of Jesus Christ Himself, who has made you His own, set you apart in His love. And from that security, we struggle with sin. 
not to achieve an identity, but in the security of our identity in Christ. This also means that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. We don't just need the good news to get into the family of God, but that's how we continue to live in God's family. Continuing to remind us of God's grace, of the good news that delivers us. And there's a simple waltz. It's a three-step. You ready? So how do we engage when we struggle with sin? We first and foremost repent. We turn from the lies that we were pursuing, and then we believe. Step two, we believe in the forgiveness that Christ has promised. We believe that fullness of joy is found in our beloved Savior who has come to die for us. And then we obey. So we grieve over our sin. We look to the promises of God. We seek the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We live for God's glory. This is our need because of the hope that Christ has purchased. And finally, Paul clarifies that this hope comes to people through a minister of hope, Epaphras, the faithful servant. It is not enough enough to have a glorious gospel message, a faithful God who is at work, but God always works through means. He always works through His people, those who respond to His grace, grace and faithful servants to other people, to share that transforming grace with one another. But if you're anything like me and you've tried to serve, uh, you might find that it is unnatural or filled with all sorts of backward motivations. We can easily turn our opportunities to serve into chances of self-promotion. I have noticed in my own attempts to serve around the house, even just washing dishes, that I'm constantly looking around my shoulder to see, is there a thank you coming soon? Uh, is, is, there, is there some sort of appreciation? I don't want much. I would just like a massive golden award that I could put on my wall to say that you have loved me well. We are convicted by this reality that so often our service is more about us being appreciated than caring and loving those we serve. In this text, we see the model of biblical servant. He says that we are servants of Christ on your behalf. You see, we don't serve people because they are worthy of our service. a matter of fact, oftentimes, the opposite is the case. I'm worthy to be served, and you are worthy to be sent away, right? But here's the good news of the gospel, that God did not serve us because we were deserving. But He came and laid down His life for those who put Him to death. And this model starts with us realizing our service is first service to Christ. And then on behalf of of those we serve. We're servants of Christ because He is worthy. We serve other people and love and care for them. And this is what happens when our future hope shapes our present growth. We seek to seek the good of others. We pursue love in all its forms. But you know, faithful service is not just the work of church staff, but it's the work of all of us together. If we do not begin serving others, then we'll find ourselves stuck in a vacuum of self-centeredness. We will be in isolation and distance from other people. So then the reality is, we need serving others as much as others need our service. We need to be shaped by this faithful service towards others. And I would just say this, this church, you serve very well. There are a number of people that have served countless times in the nursery with our children. They've served countless times, put in hours and hours serving for summer Bible school. they put on hours and hours, Wednesday night after Wednesday night, serving by singing. 
And this is a beautiful expression of love to our Savior. And I want to share two opportunities to serve this summer. One of those is with our Edge Retreat coming up soon. As far as I can tell, we still need one man to serve faithfully our middle school children and to be a room leader. And also for summer Bible school, there's more work to be done. There's more work to be done in this church and outside this church. And it is not an option for us to serve or not serve. Because God has called us to follow Christ's pattern, to be outward thinking and outward in our love. And so I want to call you to serve in some way in this church. Join me as I serve the church. Join Ron as he serves the church. Join the choir, the teachers. Join everyone and together as we serve this body and outside in this city, the gospel will continue to increase and grow in our midst. But you know, this hope is still future. We still await this future hope. There are other atrocities and injustices that we will experience, that we are experiencing. There are immense struggles, not only outside, but inside, with our own present growth. But our hope laid in heaven will one day come down to this earth. Family of God, Jesus will return. The Savior who brought salvation, bringing us into a relationship with God, will bring renewal and rid all of sin all pain, all injustice here. And so the call is persevere, hoping only in the work of Jesus to save, to sanctify and change us, and to continue to renew this world, all for the sake of His glory. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise You for the good news that You accomplished for us through Christ. We pray that You will plant this Word deep into our hearts, the Gospel of grace, would bear fruit and increase in our hearts. Shape us into a people who trust you and love all the saints with faithful service to this community, to this city, to this world. And help us, O Lord, to wait for your coming. Come again, Lord Jesus, in power, in grace, and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.